Case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 9050. Ellis P. Gregory and Anthony P. Nugent versus John D. Ashcroft. Spectators are admonished not to talk. The court remains in session. Mr. Shoemake, you may proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. And may it please the court, we are here on a case determining the validity of a Missouri mandatory retirement provision for state court judges. The issues that we have briefed are two. One is whether to those judges in Missouri who are appointed to office, whether or not they are covered by the protections of the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. With regard to judges in Missouri who are elected to office, we have maintained that the mandatory retirement age for those judges violates equal protection guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. The decision below by the Eighth Circuit was that with regard to the appointed judges, they were not covered by the Age Discrimination and Employment Act because the act exempts appointees at the policymaking level, and the court held that judges in Missouri are policymakers and hence not covered by the act. The Eighth Circuit also ruled that there was a rational basis for the mandatory retirement of all judges and hence did not violate the 14th Amendment. The district court, the Court of Appeals accepted the district court's finding that the judges were not elected officials in Missouri, did it not? Mr. Chief Justice, the Eighth Circuit accepted that proposition, but I must say in fairness there was a sentence which indicated if that issue had been briefed in the Eighth Circuit, the Eighth Circuit might have disagreed with that finding. But the district court did find that the appointed judges were not elected to office, they are appointed to office, and we submit that's the correct determination. Why do you suppose Congress would have wanted to exclude from the ADEA elected judges but not appointed judges? Because I don't believe that Congress wanted to be looking over the shoulder of the voters to determine the motive or animus or intention of the voters as to what motives they may have had in voting for elected officials and whether those elected officials were judges or governors. Now, Missouri selects its judges pursuant to constitutional provisions in the state of Missouri? That is correct. State constitutional provisions. That is correct, Justice O'Connor. And you think it's sufficiently clear that Congress intended to override these state constitutional provisions without ever making clear that intent? I think it is clear that the Congress intended that the ADEA be construed broadly and that the exceptions be narrowly construed. And I think that when the ADEA was enacted, there were 30 states approximately that appointed judges and that those congressmen and those senators who voted for that ADEA were fully aware that it may cover the judges. There's nothing in the legislative history of the ADEA itself which indicates whether the Congress intended or didn't intend 
to include or exclude the judges. Well, don't you think that when we are dealing here with a preemption of a state constitutional provision of this significance to the state, that we should look uh, for a clear expression of intent by Congress, not something that just uh, appears never to have even been considered? I believe, Justice O'Connor, there has been such clear intent or expression by the Congress because when the Act was amended in 1974, it was amended to specifically apply to states and political subdivisions as employers. And that would be, in our view, the state of Missouri is an employer, hence covered by the Act, and that a judge is an employee and hence covered by the protections uh, guaranteed by the ADEA. The I, I, I thought Justice O'Connor's question was addressed not to whether the state was covered as an employer, which it obviously is under, certainly we upheld that in EOC against Wyoming, but whether uh, uh, the statute in view of the uh, proviso which should be uh, found to reach state court judges. I believe, Your Honor, that it should be read to reach state court judges. Again, I fall back on the on fact that the statute, remedial as it is, was to be construed broadly and clearly, in our view, had Congress deemed it appropriate to exclude judges as it excluded elected, excluded elected officials and those on the elected officials' personal staff, it could have done so, and it did not do so. And yes, Mr. Chief Justice, I am advocating that the Act does include those judges, even if, in so construing, you may be attempting to override a constitutional provision of the state of Missouri. In Missouri, we have uh, two selection processes for the judges. The Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals and trial judges, Supreme Court and Court of Appeals are, elect, are selected pursuant to the Missouri Nonpartisan Court Plan, as are all judges in the metropolitan area of St. Louis and Kansas City. Everywhere else in the state of Missouri, the judges are elected. There is a greater number of judges who, is elected, who are elected than those who are appointed. Why is that distinction made, do you think? Uh, the, the, pro, the language when the uh, Missouri plan was adopted uh, initially applied to only the Supreme Court and the appellate judges. And the purpose was to remove partisan politics from the selection of judges. And then there was later an amendment to provide that same process for selection to the city of St. Louis and Kansas City, then later to St. Louis County, which is a contiguous county to the, to the city of St. Louis. And there was some, the suggestion is there was some resistance in the rural area where people wanted their judges to be elected and run for election. And on the election process, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, judges who are elected, they run in primaries just like any other candidate, and then they run in the general election. Judges who are appointed, Supreme Court judges for 12 years, and the intermediate levels down to the associate circuit judge for four years, when their terms are up or when it's time to vote, they're, they're, they don't run against anybody. In fact, the Missouri Constitution prohibits appointed judges from engaging in politics in any manner, holding any office, making any contribution, or supporting any candidate. And the only <coughs> question on the ballot is shall... Judge so-and-so be retained in office. Well, in order to have another term, he has to get the votes, doesn't he? 
he has to get the votes or he has to be voted out of office. That is correct. Well, I know, but he, he is out of office if, if uh, I mean, his term is over. His term is over. And, his and court, how, does, how does he manage to get another term? If, if he's not voted uh, to be retained, you mean, Your Honor? Well, how does he get another term? His term is over. He's on the ballot. He's on the ballot. Shall judge so-and-so be retained? Yes or no? In in effect, the the voters who vote to retain him say, yes, he should have another term. That is correct. Why isn't he elected? The reason he is not elected is the the foundation for the Missouri plan is that, uh, first of all, he's not elected when he gets his office. He is appointed. That's right. A merit Selection right. Commission appoints, submits three names to the governor. The governor selects. Yeah, but the governor can't give him another term. No, the governor cannot give him another term. The electorate term. has to give him but another term. But the, the process we submit, as we have in our briefs, of retention or non-retention is like a question on the ballot and not like one okay. for... Uh, well, anyway, that issue isn't here, I guess. I, that, we all submit right. that issue is not here, although the state has, has argued that issue. Mr. Shoemaker, all three of the judges involved here, have they been retained? The, uh, has any of them been appointed? One has... Uh, uh, one has just reti- been appointed and not stood for retention yet. Oh, these judges? Oh, I see. No, these judges have been retained. They, they all they, have. They, they, we don't have before us a judge who has just been appointed and not yet retained. That is correct, But Justice the issue would clearly apply to them. In any that is case. correct, Justice. But um, in Missouri, under the Missouri nonpartisan court plan, from its effective date... Now, some there was one judge who was grandfathered in, but from the effective date, there's never been a judge who's been failed to be retained in office. There was one judge in Kansas City who was an elected judge, was grandfathered in when it was time for retention. He was not retained. But those who have been appointed, there's not a single instance of any of those judges who have not been retained in office. Uh, We submit that to understand and appreciate the intent of the Congress in enacting the ADEA, it's best to look at the legislative history and the discussions that went on in the amendment to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which contains the same language and the same exemptions about elected officials and so forth. In in that, it was clear that what the Congress was intending was to exempt an elected official and that elected official's team, his personal staff, his legal advisors, those who made policy for him. In fact, the example is uh, such as cabinet officers and persons with comparable responsibilities in talking about policymaking. Intrigued by, by that, that theory, uh, that, that would mean that if you have at the state level the equivalent of independent regulatory agencies that we have at the federal level, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Federal Communications Commissions, and so forth, whose people are not cabinet officers, they're not part of the president's team. The whole theory of it is that they're supposed to be independent. You assert that those people would not be covered by this exemption, right? They have, I, to. I, that's they have to be not only appointed by the elected official, but they have to be subject to his uh, direction and uh, They have and to be command. serving that, that officer. In fact, uh, Now, why, why would they make that kind of a distinction? That seems to me very strange. Well, because uh, they wanted that elected official to be able to have those persons who were going to serve him and generate the policy that he stands for, attempt to, for which he was elected, to uh, to uh, be able to serve him and be exempt from, from the act. In fact, in, in the National League of, of Cities, while the language is a little different, the opinion talks about, in construing those exemptions, talking about ser- the language is serving such an office holder. 
those persons are exempt are exempt because they're serving such an office holder. We submit the judges in Missouri aren't serving the appointing office holder. They're independent judges, and, and they remain independent. The, uh, and the statutory construction, again, is borrowed time and time again by the courts from the 1972 amendments as it relates to Title VII, wherein there the discussion was what kinds of exemptions were to be included. And there was only one mention. There's no mention in the reports itself or themselves about exempting uh, judges. The only mention is in some Senate, Senate debate one time. Senator Irvin from North Carolina used the word judge at that time describing the governor, the chief justice, and at the time he was doing it, all judges in North Carolina were elected. So there was no mention about uh, appointed judges. The judges we submit do not fall within the exemption of being appointees at the policymaking level. And our emphasis on level, we think that's an unnatural construction of words as they are used in the federal system by Congress when it refers to those who are, po- are appointees at the policymaking level. Well, Mr. Shoemaker, uh, you, you said a moment ago that it covers uh, uh, the, the exemption, it exempts elected officials, and then the goes on to say any person chosen by such officer to be on such officer's personal staff, then it goes on to say, or an appointee on the policy-making level. Now, that must mean something more than just an appointee on an, on an elected official staff, or you, you wouldn't need it. Well, when I said on the elected official staff, I, if I limited that, I misspoke, Mr. Chief Justice. What I'm talking about is those who are normally recognized as, as persons who make policy. And the example used was such as cabinet officers uh, and persons with comparable responsibilities at the local level. Now, I'm, I'm reading from the conference report on the amendment to Title VII, but again, that language has been used in construing the ADEA, which has the precise same exemptions. But you do agree that the phrase appointee on the policymaking level is independent of the phrase uh, a person chosen by such officer to be on such officer's personal stand. It's disjunctive, so I think it would be uh, independent of that phrase, yes, Mr. Chief Justice. The, the judges in Missouri, we submit, as the Second Circuit found in EEOC versus Vermont, may incidentally make policy, but their basic function is to decide legal disputes. They may fill in gaps. They may do other things. But the judges, and they regulate the bar, pass rules for the bar and for the, for the courts, the Supreme Court does. But their basic function is to resolve legal matters. Well, I know, but uh, I suppose is there still a common law uh, element uh, in Missouri, isn't there? Yes, there is, Justice White. And judges um, uh, keep developing the common law in Missouri. They, they, they do keep developing the common law in Missouri. And uh, they, have to make, they, have to, they have to decide what the rule is to decide a case. They do. And you think, you think that, is, uh, that isn't making any kind of policy? I don't mean to suggest that, Justice White. There may be some policy connected with but before they engage in that, there has to be a case or controversy in front of that court. And whatever the court does generally, there may be some exceptions I'm unaware of, there are going to be certain parameters in which that court operates, maybe in the context of the Constitution or the common law. But that's where the court is. It has a 
context in which it makes those judgments. Well, I assume the governor of the state of Missouri has to obey the state constitution and the common law, too, doesn't he? That is correct. Well, official is completely unrestrained from a certain minimal rudiments of discretion. I, I don't mean to suggest he is, but again... The well, then I don't see how your distinction is persuasive. Well, the distinction is the judges in Missouri don't make policy, for example, that uh, the policy will be that uh, we're only going to allow public service companies to come for rate increases every three years. That's going to be the policy we're going to do. So you would say that if there, that, that I suppose you have administrative agencies in the state. We do. And they're authorized by the legislature to issue regulations uh, Im- implementing the statute? That is correct. And those people are appointed? Those people are appointed. They're therefore uh, uh, unprotected by the... by the Age Discrimination Act? It would be our view that those who are the head of those agencies, such as the Public Service Commission, who may generate policy... Well, the members members of the agency issue the regulations. If if their appointments are for a number of years, three years, four, then I would have to say yes, that they are... Although the judges uh, who review their issuance of the regulations are not. Those judges who are appointed. Those judges who are appointed to office. But, Mr. Schumacher, it doesn't say or an appointee who is a policymaker. It says an appointee on the policymaking level. That is Does that, that not mean comparable responsibility or comparable salary or something of that kind, rather than that the person must be a policymaker himself or herself? Well, the plain language of what Congress meant, as we read it, is they meant poli- on the policymaking level. Right. And For example, in salary way... Judges are paid at executive level, level two, three, or four. I don't know what it is, but they often have uh, j- defined judges in term by the level of for certain purposes. What I'm trying to say, I, I'm, I, may I just explain why the word level isn't critical in this case. I think that is the critical word. The word level is what is critical. I think what we uh, submit the court must look to is what did the Congress mean using the word level, not policymaker, but policymaking level, and. Again, hearkening to the conference report on amendments to Title VII, and the only examples that we've had as to what was meant at the policymaking level, it, they said such as cabinet officers and other, compar- and other comparable responsibilities at the local level. And we submit that in using that, the federal Congress, the Congress, intended it to be those that the Congress generally recognizes as those who reach a level where they make policy. And that would be, in our judgment, those such as the example here, the cabinet, and not the judges. There's, never, there's no ever any example or suggestion given that it would be appointed judges. Did Missouri at one time have an exemption from tort liability for charitable institute, uh, charities? Yes, it did. And it, does it still have it? It does not. Uh, under certain circumstances, it does, but generally it Was that result changed by the Supreme Court of Missouri? It was, as was. You wouldn't think that was policymaking? I think that would be the tougher question of whether that's policymaking. I'd have to say it is, but within the context of a matter of a dispute that comes before it, I don't think they start out to say our policy is going to be henceforth as a court that uh, there's no immunity uh, for uh, charitable institutions. I think there has to be a case or controversy in which they discuss 
prior cases, prior precedent. We just had a change in Missouri recently from contributory negligence as a defense to the one of comparative fault. So, yeah, well, you would say that um, if an administrative agency in your state is authorized to issue regulations interpreting a statute and to, and to adjudicate cases based on that regulation, uh, those regulators are not protected, as you said a minute ago. I would say that those who appoint... Well, what, if they, what if the agency decides, uh, well, regulations are fine, but we're going to operate by adjudication. We're going to announce all of our rules by adjudication, and we're going to follow our rules that we announce by adjudication. Just stare decisis, that's going to be the rule. Mm-hmm. I suppose you would say that uh, those regulators are protected or unprotected? I would have to say, in my mind, in my example, they're still unprotected. 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 Because, because they, they make that judgment. That is their policy. Uh-huh. They make that judgment that that's the way this regulates, regulating body but, uh, is going to operate. At common law, the, uh, uh, when they announced a rule in a case, they were announcing one uh, that they were going to apply in all future cases. Well, that is correct. But again, the difference, if, if, the, regu- if the regular, the, the Public Service Commission in Missouri, which regulates, obviously, the public service company, if it says from now on we're just going to follow the, the rules and we're not going to enact, that already been established, we're not going to enact new rules, that, in my judgment, that's policy. That's a policy decision that they make. And there's no case or controversy in front of them at the time. It's just a judgment that they make. As, as a matter of policy, those who have been appointed to those policy-making positions by the governor. If I may, uh, uh, there are judges uh, in Missouri who are elected. They are the only officials in the state government of Missouri who have to mandatorily retire at 70 who are in non-physically demanding jobs, not legislators, not the governor, not the librarian, not the janitor. Only judges have to retire at 70. And we recognize this court's pronouncement that age is not a suspect class and that if there's a rational basis for upholding that classification, we lose. We submit to the court that there is no rational basis for requiring judges to retire and and not requiring any other employee in the state of Missouri to retire. Well, maybe the people who vote for other officials uh, uh, have a better uh, knowledge of whether they're doing a good or bad job, and maybe it's a lot harder for the voter to know whether a judge is doing a good or bad job because it depends upon uh, interpretation of a lot of dusty old statutes. Isn't that a rational basis? You can trust the electorate to know when... uh, when, a, when a, an elected executive or legislative official can't hack it anymore, but you, you really can't trust them to know whether a judge is doing it. I would not. That was never an articulated rational basis. Does it have to be Missouri. an articulated one? I, would, I don't think we can guess, Judge, Justice Scalia. Oh, I think we guessed all the time. As to what, as, well, Missouri has articulated in a Supreme Court case as to what the rational basis were for, for judge. And in my, you asked me, in my experience, having come from a rural area in Missouri, there, in many instances, there is no more hotly contested election than for the circuit judgeships that cover three or four counties. And what that judge has done and not done is, is, is brought to the public's attention by his opponent time and time and time, his or her opponent time and time again. So I do believe the electorate is fully informed, maybe more so than most elections, as to what the circuit judges who are elected in Missouri are doing. But now, are those circuit judges, uh, do you contend they are covered 
uh, by the ADEA? No, I do not, Mr. Chief Justice. I was moving on to my equal protection no. argument that to require those judges, all judges uh, in Missouri, including the elected judges, to retire at 70 violates equal protection. Yeah, but how about your response to Justice Scalia's question with respect to the judges who would be covered by the ADEA and so the, the, the appellate judges in, in, in Missouri? Well, uh, Are those elections hot, hotly contested. It seems to me, no, uh, no, they're not contested at all. Those who are appointed, they're not. They have no opponent. They're not contested at all. It's just simply on the ballot. Shall judge so and so be repeated? Yes, but there may be terrific campaigns going to uh, on both sides of the issue. Should this fellow be or this lady be uh, retained or not? There, there are those. There may be a lot of money spent uh, on both sides of the case. Has existed in California. I recognize uh, those cases. But again, those citizens, instead of being uninformed, Haven't there been some me, votes, uh, substantial numbers of votes against retention on certain people? There have been uh, substantial votes. My, my recollection is in, uh, is in uh, St. Louis area uh, where I live that uh, the retentions range all the way from 60 some percent on up. Uh, and uh, there's is not. Is that in the record? I beg your pardon. Is that in the record? That is not in the record, uh, Justice Marshall. It's public information. It's public information. I probably should have. Uh, but uh, with regard to the equal protection argument, we submit there's no rational basis for requiring only judges, even those elected, to retire, because one of the rational bases stated is that the Supreme Court in Missouri, when it wrote the O'Neill opinion in 1976, that we all recognize that 70s about an age is about the time when physical and mental deterioration commences. The studies are all contrary to that as far as mental abilities are concerned. Uh, the announcement that uh, it made for ease in administering a pension plan doesn't change that pension plan any different than any other pension plans for those officials in the state of Missouri. The articulation that opens up opportunities for young members of the bar, no different than opening up opportunities for other members, for other uh, segments. Well, isn't there something to be said, though, for public office, high public office, turning over every so often? And with your other high public officials in Missouri, you have regular, uh, uh, you know, four-year elections. With judges, you have a much longer term. With the circuit judges, it's a six-year election in Missouri. For those who are elected, those who are retained as circuit judges, it's six years. Associate judges are four years. Justice uh, uh, How about Gregory is an associate. Uh, How about the appellate judges? Uh, eight and twelve, Your Honor. Uh, twelve years for uh, Mr. Chief Justice for the Supreme Court. But that, in my view, that same rationale, that same argument, uh, if advanced, would be applicable. To, to the others, the governors, the legislators, the, the, the Senate, the House, the uh, prosecuting attorney. Well, except they, are, they have shorter terms, certainly, than the, the appellate judges. Shorter terms than the appellate judges, yes, they certainly do. If I may, I would like to reserve. Would you say, that, would you say the, uh, the Age Discrimination Act uh, is unconstitutional in, uh, in uh, exempting elected officials? No, I do not think it's unconstitutional in exempting elected officials. Well, uh, couldn't you argue there's no rational basis for exempting them? Well, I don't think so, because I think that... Uh, well, you just did. I don't recall doing well, it. You, you well, you, you, you said there's no rational basis for not protecting these elected judges. Under the Equal Protection Act of the 14th yes, Amendment, yes. yes. The ADA is a specific. You mean is would I argue it's unconstitutional that the ADA exempted elected officials? Yeah. I would not argue that. Not even as applied to judges. I would not. 
Thank you, Mr. Shoemake. Uh, Mr. Deutsch, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, this case contains many interesting issues of statutory construction and legislative history, constitutional law. I plan to first address, as my colleague did, the appointed officials' exemption, although I will then address the elected officials' exemption, because we do believe it is properly before the Court, and I do intend to seek the benefit of that exemption for the uh, State of Missouri, finally concluding with the constitutional issues, if I have the time. Uh, if Missouri's nonpartisan uh, court plan judges are appointed officials, as the petitioners contend, uh, then they are most certainly appointed officials on the uh, policy-making level within the meaning of the ADEA and exempt uh, from the, the requirements of ADEA by the language of the Act. I will tell you that the language of this statute is not a masterpiece of legislative draftsmanship I do not find it to be clear. However, I do find from the legislative history that there were at least two motivating purposes in Congress's mind, and the first of those was federalism. The first principle that Senator Irvin had in mind in introducing this amendment was that he did not want to infringe upon the prerogatives of the state in the selection of their own government officials, their own form of government. The second principle was one that's already been announced. And that is that the Congress realized that some officials in government have their own cleansing agent. The ADEA seeks to prohibit the use of age as an across-the-board uh, method for uh, taking people out of public as well as private employment. However, Congress did understand that, for instance, elected officials stand before the electorate. They have their own problems but, uh, to deal with. Uh, they do not need coverage of the ADEA, and indeed it is unwise uh, for many of the reasons that were earlier stated, for, that they should do so. The voters are the ones that decide uh, whether elected officials have done their job and whether they are competent. These two principles, I think, when read into the statute for an understanding, although still not creating crystal clarity, I think makes it clear that the Congress chose broad language. The Congress said appointed officials on the policymaking level, in addition to three other exemptions, they chose broad language. They chose to favor federalism. It is our argument to this court that the court should indulge them uh, that favoritism towards the federal system and agree that all state judges were intended to be exempted by this particular provision. The, the, uh, there appears additionally nothing in the language of the statute or within the legislative history which excludes judges, and this goes to the question of a clear statement. Uh, while this may be an unusual case, perhaps, for the application of a clear statement, because the Congress did say, on the one hand, it applies, and then turned around and said, but it doesn't apply to certain people, we do believe that given the interests of federalism, which were certainly in the minds of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, clearly in the mind of the First Circuit Court of Appeals in EEOC versus Massachusetts, that the principles of federalism that the Congress had in mind indicates that any mention of the judiciary uh, in, the la in the language of a statute which otherwise did not deal with specific officials was probably intentional. It was intended to be broad, intended to be broadly read. Uh, additionally, we would suggest that the contention that judges are not policymakers be categorically rejected by this court. Uh, judges most certainly are policymakers, at least in the state of Missouri, which is a common law state. The list of decisions from our courts that have outlined and defined the common law and set the policy for the state of Missouri is endless, 
And more than that, I think that the rather disparaging nature of uh, describing judges and their work to be law and fact computers that simply apply known principles of law to established fact is something that only happens in the easy cases, which usually get handled by two lawyers and their clients, and doesn't even make it before a court. Courts deal with cases. They deal with disputes. They deal with real problems. Uh, it is inappropriate to describe a judge on any basis but uh, that of being a policymaker. Uh, I would note that the petitioners, of course, normally call them lawmakers. Uh, that, that was one of the terms that were ascribed to them, and I, I think that the understanding that should be made if, in fact, the Congress had the any oh, knowledge... you would describe them uh, as making the common law, wouldn't you? Certainly. They, they make law, just as the legislature makes law. They don't law. find it some, under some rock or something? Well, we sometimes wonder, Your Honor, but it, in, in fact, no, the, uh, the courts in our state draw upon a long history of common law in order to... Uh, to shape the common law in a couple of the instances that my colleague mentioned, uh, abolishment of sovereign immunity, switching to a comparative uh, fault system after years of urging our legislature to do so to no avail. Our courts do, in fact, make policy. But I think that the important thing to understand is that the petitioners do not seem to describe adequately the concept of policymaking in the state government uh, context. Uh, everybody in state government, I hope everyone in the federal government, is confined to certain parameters. The legislature does make the laws, but the legislature makes the laws consistent with the principles of the constitutions, both state and federal. The executive does implement the laws, and he certainly has great policymaking uh, potential there, but he has to stay within the intent of statutes that are enacted by the legislature and also within the Constitution, and it is the court's job to make sure that both of the other two branches stay within their authority. The concept of policymaking that I get from the choice of language by the Congress is an understanding that policy, in the government sense, is made by all three branches of government. It is made together. It sets the public policy uh, for the state, like Missouri, for all of the other states. It is not a single, well-defined, monolithic duty of one branch, it is something that applies to all three branches of government. Mr. Deutsch, um, you know, we have to make the best we can of the language that Congress wrote for us. Uh, you, you say there are three exceptions set forth there, right? One is uh, uh, any person elected to public office, right? Yes, Your Honor. And then any person chosen by such officer to, to be on such officer's personal staff, uh, I, I guess four. There are four separate okay. exemptions. Or an appointee on the policy level, and you say that goes all by itself. Well, it, from the way that the statute was uh, formed, it, it clearly was by itself. I agree that its placement in a list of provisions is somewhat unusual, but again, uh, it... Well, not if it's disjunctive. It, it is disjunctive, and that was one of the things pointed out by the uh, First Circuit in uh, EEOC versus Massachusetts, is that it, perhaps not the most uh, easily understood statute uh, to be read, but clearly the House added that last provision, really, really the third exemption, uh, in a conference. Uh, it was not added by the Senate. All of the legislative history that has been uh, utilized contained only the three exemptions for elected officials, for immediate advisors, and personal staff. And all of the debates concerning that naturally do seem to approach perhaps that particular form, that formulation of an elected official, his staff and his cabinet. We argue, however, that the Congress chose together, uh, House and Senate, 
the appointed official and the policymaking level. It is broad. It should be interpreted broadly enough to include officials like judges. It is not judges, perhaps, that are the only officials that would fit within there, but clearly judges are policymaking officials and can fit within that exemption and in, in the interest of federalism should. Just refresh my recollection. They are appointees of the governor, are they not? <clears throat> the Missouri plan judges are appointees of the governor, according to the Missouri plan. Who is an elected official. He is an elected official. That's correct. And that is why I believe that the, the structure that it takes on, uh, we have discussed only judges because that's what, it, what is at issue here. However, I would, I would suggest to the court that this exemption does cover uh, the example that was made earlier, uh, the equivalent of the ICC on the local level is our Public Service Commission. These are people who are appointed by the governor, and yes, they are not uh, answerable to him. They're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be independent. They are clearly policymakers. They are appointed for terms which are taken beyond any individual governor. However, I think that that is the nature of the position that was had in mind by the Congress when they enacted that position, and clearly, when you consider then Missouri Plan judges, they fit within that same type of a classification of an appointee made by the governor for a term which then he will cease to have any control over. In the last clause of the first sentence of the statute, uh, do you interpret the phrase with respect to the exercise of the constitutional or legal powers of the office to modify just immediate advisor? I think that that was the intention, and I think what they're referring there to is the cabinet official exemption, the illustration that was so often used in the Senate, that it is still in the, the conference report, that it was intended to limit the reach down through the chain of, the, of command, especially with regard to the elected official and using the governor as an example, to be an immediate advisor under that particular exemption. I do not believe that it is necessarily read in conjunction with the separate exemption for appointed. Your, your interpretation would be more sustainable if there were the comma after the word level, I take it. I, again, will apologize for the lack of clarity of the statute, Your Honor. Well, sometimes the elimination of a comma is designed to aid us in the construction, and, the, and in this case it would indicate that the final clause applies and modifies both appointee and advisor. That is a available reading. That is the reading, I think, that the petitioners would place upon the statute. I would again say that uh, if the rule to be applied, however, in an area dealing with the federal and state balance, which this is, requires some degree of confidence that uh, that is the correct interpretation, that degree of confidence is not present, and in fact, the court should, if it errs at all in interpretation, err in favor of the federal-state balance and its maintenance. Well, we should try not to err at all. I think we're going to try to get it just right. <laughs> I know you do, Your Honor. Uh, Additionally, we would suggest that all judges under the Missouri Nonpartisan Court Plan, elected and uh, appointed as they have been described, are exempt from the requirements of ADEA because they are elected officials, elected by the qualified voters of the state of Missouri. Uh, there are 342 judges in the state of Missouri under Article 5 of our Constitution, the, the Missouri Plan. Uh, 201 of these are elected. These are the judges' circuit and associate circuit in primarily the rural areas of the state. They do run in partisan elections. 40% of our judges, 141, are under the Missouri plan. They are appointed by the governor. Uh, they are, they, 
the, by a process where a commission appoints or selects three of the most capable applicants who apply for a position, the governor may choose one, but the Constitution requires that this individual run in the next general election after 12 months of service on the bench in a retention election. Uh, we, under our law, under an interpretation placed on that since 1973, uh, find under state law that is an elective office. It has not lost its nature as an elective office by virtue of the change in the selection process. But the problem is the, is the uh, word elected to office. Isn't that where you get into trouble? He isn't elected to it. He was appointed to it, and the election goes to retention. That's correct, and that was, uh, in a short footnote, the disposition made of it by the U.S. District Court was that these are not elected to office. These judges are appointed to office and then elected. I would suggest that that is an entirely uh, too crabbed an interpretation of the provision. It makes really very little sense. What the court would seem to be saying then is that Judge McHaney, who at one time was in this case, is also an appointed judge. Uh, judge, or excuse me, Governor Hearns appointed him to office, and then he later ran for the vacancy. Uh, most of our judges are appointed by the governor because of the movement within the judiciary through promotions and retirements, uh, and most of the officials would always be appointed judges. If but, but, the, uh, but even these judges who are appointed initially, their terms expire. Uh, and uh, in order to have a subsequent term, they have to be voted on. That's correct. They are answerable to the voters. And I think this is probably the crucial element. Uh, to finish up the answer to my question, I believe that the proper construction be placed upon the elected officials' exemption is that it should be elected to an elective office. The fact that an office is appointed, you will never answer to the voters if it is an appointed office. However, if you do answer to the voters, I believe the proper construction of that term is that it is an elective office, and the fact that you may be appointed to it is irrelevant to the nature of the office, and that is, in fact, what our state law seems to hold. Well, why, would it, why, would the state, why, why would your state have an occasion to decide that question? We had a, a request for an attorney general's opinion back in 1970. Why? Why? Pardon me? Why? Why? With because the, our Constitution prohibits a member of the General Assembly from succeeding to an appointed office for which he raised the emoluments, and that occurred. We ruled, however, that the legislator may be appointed to office because this is an elective office under state law. So our law in the state, which we, we respectfully urge that deference be given to, does make this uh, an elective office. And as I was beginning to get back to your, to your point, Justice White, uh, the thing to understand about the Missouri system is that it is essentially a, a bit of a bargain between the members of the judiciary and the public. Uh, the members of the public want the highest caliber, highest quality judiciary they can, they can find. Uh, we have found in our state that elections often do not provide the highest caliber lawyers, the highest caliber officials that we are looking for. We have found that appointment works to that end. However, what we have done is create a very tough selection process, very hard to get in. Certainly, political credentials will not always serve you well. And we have granted, essentially, super incumbency. The judge who is appointed serves a, an enormously long time, particularly on the Court of Appeals, 12 years for our Court of Appeals judges, six years for our circuit judges. Uh, they are given the benefit of superincumbency because they run against no opponent. They run for retention. They run against themselves. It is true that no one has ever not been retained. That's, I think, uh, a matter of pride in the state of Missouri. 
because we do take pride in our judiciary. But at the end of the term, there is a price to be paid, and that is the price that the voters of Missouri in 1970 enacted uh, overwhelmingly, and I think based upon experience in the state of Missouri, that a mandatory retirement age guarantees that the benefits of this superincumbency will not carry on forever, that it will end, and that the benefits of being able to move new people into the system, into the judiciary, uh, will be obtained through an orderly attrition created by mandatory retirement. May, may I ask you a question about the policy-making point, going back to the Certainly. earlier argument? I understand uh, your argument about uh, changing sovereign immunity and major changes in the law that are worked by the Supreme Court of the state. But the average trial judge, most of these 141 judges are not uh, members of the Supreme Court and do not independently change the policy on sovereign immunity. How do you, how do you describe the average trial judge as being a policymaker? I think any criminal defendant that's ever stood in front of one of our trial judges for sentencing probably regards him as a policymaker. Uh, I think that's probably one example of where, uh, if there were a policy-making function and you had to figure out what was for the good of the community, what the uh, co- common and uh, accepted principles of penology would have to say about the sentence you are about to meet out, uh, all of the things that go into a determination of a... Well, supposing, I don't know, maybe you don't have something like our sentencing guidelines in the federal system, but well, they were rather, rather specific sentences required to be imposed. Is that the only kind of policy they... I mean, is there any other area in which you say the trial judge makes well, policy other than sentencing? Of course they participate in the policy-making judgments uh, for the judicial branch through their budget and so forth. Uh, but I would note also, Your Honor, that in the policy-making uh, exemption, it not only says policy-making level, which is an institutional rather than functional approach, but I don't find anything in the legislative history or the statute that says that you make policy all the time or you make it half the time or you make it once in a while. I think that an understanding of... What is, what is the lowest level of jurisdiction that the judges covered in this category have? you have municipal court judges? Associate circuit judges. Municipal judges are excluded from the... Associate circuit What sort of jurisdiction do they have? Oh, they have... What uh, policy do they uh, have? I believe it's a $15,000 uh, dollar limit. Do they have criminal uh, court jurisdiction? They have criminal court jurisdiction. They do a lot of the DWIs. They sentence a lot of the defendants. Uh, additionally, in our felony, state... Do they have felony jurisdiction? Yes, well, and particularly because in our state, depending upon the circuit and its caseload, the presiding judge may appoint an associate circuit judge to sit as a circuit judge. That happens quite frequently, uh, particularly in the rural areas of the state, because although in a circuit there may be only one circuit judge for several counties, each county is constitutionally entitled to one associate circuit judge, and that's their judge. He is the highest-ranking judicial official in that county most of the time. It is a full-time job for them. It certainly is, and it is prohibited to practice law uh, while holding it. Mr. Deutsch, with with respect to the associate circuit judges, they have $15,000 civil jurisdiction, is that right? I believe that's the number. uh, They keep raising it. uh, Well, within within that jurisdiction, they could be asked to recognize a new common law cause of action, couldn't they? Oh, certainly. And, Certainly. and they if, have, if requested, they would have the option to do so subject to appeal, wouldn't they? That's correct, and I think that's another thing that uh, has been brought up in those decisions, such as EEOC versus Vermont, that judges can always be appealed. Well, judges uh, can only be appealed if the lawyers take, they take it upon themselves to do it. I think that is unlike the executive branch in many regards, and most particularly, not everybody in the executive branch uh, is appointed by the governor and has to run for a retention election or run in a partisan election. These judges, at every level, are real judges. They do have the power, the judicial power of the state of Missouri. We regard them as important. 
Uh, we regard them as state officials of some magnitude, and we believe that the Congress indicated in its use of terms in the appointed official exemption uh, that it understood that and put them into a group of appointed officials on the policymaking level who were to be exempt from the ADEA. Finally, I will just touch briefly upon the constitutional question, the uh, equal protection matter. Uh, I don't think that the Court needs to take a great deal of time to struggle with the Cleburne case. I think that case is clearly understandable. Uh, in Cleburne, the uh, situation there presented no rational basis upon which to sustain the law at issue. And in this case, I believe that we have. And I would point out that there are several rational bases, but for purposes of the case, let me just suggest that uh, the most important of those rational basis is the availability of the resources that this orderly attrition creates for our Chief Justice to make the work of the judiciary uh, go forward. Uh, the fact that we get to move by that attrition younger members of the profession into our uh, legal profession, into our ju ju judiciary, uh, and most importantly, the fact that we are able to correct the... And that argument, I guess you could, have, you could justify a 50-year retirement age, couldn't you? Uh, I think we probably could. I don't see where we to. Most of the 30? judges that we appoint. You, you could justify a 35-year retirement age, uh, I don't think so, Your Honor. Why not? You'd move them along a little faster. Well, that might be a little too fast. Yeah. Uh, well, you certainly could say that judges can only serve one term. We have term limitation is one of the fears that we have that come out of this case if the petitioners are agreed to. We kind of like the terms that our judges have now. They're nice and long, and they have that super incumbency that uh, helps them out a great deal, so they're not always out campaigning and raising money. And, uh, but you could say judges, uh, whether they're elected or appointed, can only serve one term. You, we, could see, we could do that constitutionally, and I don't think that uh, the ADEA would certainly prohibit it. We already have a term limitation on our governor of two terms. Uh, that would not be discrimination on account of age. Uh, I, I would hope not. Oh, all right. uh, to conclude with what I was saying before, the uh, main feature that I think that comes out of the Missouri plan, at least in the last 20 years since the mandatory retirement age uh, has been in effect, is the fact that we have done a very good job, I think, of being able to promote more women, more minorities we, to, into the judiciary, a place where uh, we, it was lacking in the past. We have had, under this very defendant, the first Supreme Court, female Supreme Court justice in the state's history, the first appellate court uh, female member in the state's history, many minority and female members of the courts. If your 70-year-old age limit causes this turnover, you've had that a long time. Why did it take so long to get a female judge? I, I believe that uh, perhaps some of uh, the predecessors were not trying hard enough, Your Honor. Um, Mr. Deutsch, uh, uh, was the, do um, you know whether the ADEA was uh, based exclusively on the Commerce Clause or was it also based on the 14th Amendment? Well, the only thing that jumps out at me is that in the Statement of Purposes it says that the, the finding uh, that the uh, age of discrimination in employment is a burden on interstate commerce. I, I don't find anything that is that clear of a statement concerning the 14th Amendment, uh, and therefore I would conclude, as some courts have, that uh, the Commerce Clause is the basis upon which the ADEA was enacted. Uh, I think that perhaps with the disposition of this, this Court's rulings between National League of Cities and the Garcia case, I've noticed a decline in the number of times that that finding has been necessary to be made. I think it was probably uh, an issue uh, when it was thought important to avoid the reach of National League of Cities in order to 
not have the ADA declared unconstitutional, but uh, since 1983, in particular with EEOC versus Wyoming, it does not seem to be a very necessary feature to declare it to be under the 14th Amendment at this time. In conclusion, then, Your Honors, I would suggest that uh, Missouri uh, and the Missouri plan are a, a model for appellate and uh, trial court merit judicial selection. It has been widely emulated. Uh, it is something that we cannot, for the life of us, see why the federal government should want to become involved in. Do not see uh, one word having been spoken by Congress indicating an intent to become in this election. Can, can we decide this case in your favor without saying that the Missouri plan is great? <laughs> I would prefer, of course, that you say that, Your Honor, but I think we would accept uh, that conclusion uh, without those precise terms. There are no further questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Deutsch. Uh, Mr. Schumach, do you have rebuttal? You have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. With regard to the question of whether or not the appointed judges, when they stand for retention, are elected to office, the Missouri Constitution provides that, except as otherwise provided in this subchapter, all candidates for elective office shall be nominated at a primary election. And these appointed judges do not do that. They do not run in a primary election. That's the constitutional requirement. If you're all candidates for elective office, shall be nominated primary. How, how is that significant in determining what Congress meant? Though? I, th I think it's significant in that it's, it's not. It goes to the issue of whether or not these appointed judges are elective and hence exempt from uh, the coverage under the ADEA. I mean, it shows they don't fall into sort of one paradigm for the selection of people to run for office, but that's as far as it goes. Well, uh, Justice Sue, I submit it, it goes a little further than that. It shows that uh, those who have, how they're dressed as, as elected officials, these appointed judges do not wear that, that clo clothing. They are different. They're retained in office. With regard to the interpretation, finally, uh, that the Congress did not... Uh, exclude or include judges. That is true. What the Congress did was to say that the statute shall be construed broadly and that, uh, and that any exemptions shall be construed narrowly. And finally, the... Where, where is that? Uh, that's in the conference report oh. relating to... The conference committee said that. I thought, I thought it was... No, it is not in the statute, Judge, Justice Scalia. And finally, uh, the, the age discrimination act in its introductory remarks talks about the, discrimina uh, the arbitrary discrimination on age. That's what it's designed to, to rectify. And we submit that these judges in Missouri are being arbitrarily discriminated against simply because they're 70 years of age. No further questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Shoemake. The case is submitted.